Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Buster brought to you by The Point with me, Liu Xin. In this series, I dissect stories that are making headlines around the world and talk to my guests to make up for the missing, some deliberately, pieces of the puzzle. This week, we are looking at media reports on Afghanistan, exactly one year after the US pullout. We still remember clearly the pandemonium at Kabul International Airport. Military planes were flying in and out to evacuate as many personnel and civilians as possible. Since the Taliban, however, regained control, it's been an uphill battle just to keep the population alive after 40 years of war, including 20 years of foreign occupation. After much soul-searching, and with the benefit of hindsight, it finally dawned upon the U.S. that uh, the grave of empires was worth its reputation. But the U.S. is still throwing a spanner in the works for Afghanistan's recovery, and Western media are now critical of China's efforts to help get the country or help the country stand up on its own. Sour grapes? I have a strange feeling of deja vu. I've got my examples ready to go, but first, what is the story? It's a two-decade-long story of death and misery. According to the Brown University Costs of War project, about 243,000 people have been killed in the Afghan-Pakistan war zone since 2001. More than 70,000 of those killed have been civilians. The U.S managed to help the country keep its head artificially above water with the wagon loads of dollars, but it only exacerbated corruption, poverty and overall resentment and fear. As I said, last August, as U.S. military planes were returning home, 6,000 Americans and more than 73,000 third-country nationals and Afghan civilians were evacuated in just two weeks' time. One year on, the dust has finally settled. How have the Taliban fared? Obviously, pain and suffering is acute. In June, the UN Security Council reported that the Afghan economy had contracted by an estimated 30 to 40 percent since the Taliban takeover. About over a half million Afghans have lost their jobs since last August. Prices for basic consumer products, including wheat, flour, rice and sugar, have increased by roughly 40 to 50 percent from last year. The UN estimated in May that roughly 20 million Afghans, almost half the population, were facing acute hunger. This is the heart-wrenching humanitarian reality. Hunger and severe malnutrition are rife, and the interim government is struggling to keep the country's economy afloat, not to mention women's and girls' basic rights. But is that the whole picture? To quote Professor Sultan Barakat from Hamad bin Khalifa University in Doha, Qatar, the Taliban's first year back in power was one of crisis, but they also scored victories that deserve to be acknowledged. To start with, the administration has generally achieved stability nationwide. Since last August, no major fighting has been reported 
in the country. In a recent interview, former Afghan President Hamid Karzai said the economy is a disaster, but... In terms of end to widespread fighting in conflict, we are happy. There's more stability, there's more security. That's echoed, actually, by findings of a recent global survey conducted by CGTN and the Chinese Institute of Public Opinion at Renmin University of China. The survey targeted people from 24 countries, including Afghanistan. Results show nearly 70% of those polled believe that the country's security had improved significantly. Almost half of the respondents believed Afghans finally got rid of external forces and are on their way to regain complete sovereignty. It's a tough job to rebuild a war-ravaged country. It's even tougher when the world's most powerful country is not on your side. Earlier this year, the United States decided to freeze 7 billion US dollars of Afghan central bank's asset in the United States and sought to split it. 3.5 billion for 9-11 victims' families and 3.5 billion for aid for Afghanistan. A few months later, the Biden administration announced it will not release these 3.5 billion for aid, citing concerns that the money could flow to terrorist groups. The United Nations human rights experts warned in August that the humanitarian and economic crisis is predicted to worsen partly due to the interruption of international development assistance and the freezing of Afghan assets abroad. Now, where and how does China fit into the picture? Being a close neighbor, China has a clear interest in a stable Afghanistan. China has stepped up efforts to assist the administration to tide over the crisis and help Afghans take their fate in their own hands. Apart from providing the country with over 50 million US dollars worth of urgent humanitarian assistance, China has announced to provide 1 billion yuan or 140 million US dollars of humanitarian and development aid in March. China imported more than 1,400 tons of pine nuts, which will benefit a large number of Afghan farmers. These chartered cargo flights have been called the Pine Nuts Express. After the earthquake in eastern Afghanistan in June, China released 50 million yuan or 7 million US dollars worth of urgent humanitarian assistance. And bear with me, China is pulling all the stops to help bring long-term peace and stability to Afghanistan. It has conducted intensive work with the United Nations and regional platforms such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Together with neighboring countries of Afghanistan, China launched a mechanism of coordination and cooperation in September last year, which has been hailed by regional parties for playing a unique role. In March, China hosted the third foreign minister's meeting among the neighboring countries of Afghanistan in Tunxi, East China's Anhui province. There was a joint statement stressing continuous support for Afghanistan, while a Tunxi initiative pledged to focus on economic reconstruction and practical cooperation. So, while the situation is grim, there is a silver lining, and China believes engagement is key. Boy Scouts have a rule, always leave the campground cleaner than you found it. After 20 years of occupation in Afghanistan, can't the US clean up after itself, or at least help doing so?
Recently, China's special envoy on Afghan affairs, Yue Xiaoyong, had a message for the United States. The United States, just after 20 years with NATO uh, occupation of this country, they caused a lot of suffering and all this. They actually are the starter of all the problems and the crisis of Afghanistan. So one thing we still urge United States to show their major and the primary responsibility of Afghanistan's peace, stability and the reconstruction. But that's probably too much to ask. With the midterms around the corner in the United States, finger-pointing over the Afghan debacle goes into high gear. Plus, the media are turning a blind eye on the Taliban's efforts to revive the economy, while China's so-called ulterior motives in the region come once again under the spotlight. Let me show you some headlines. First, in the last couple of weeks, I noticed that uh, media reports have been focusing on Democrats and Republicans at each other's throats over the pullout fiasco. The media are a sucker for such a finger-pointing saga. But the plight of Afghans have been eclipsed, to say the least, by the political wrangling about who is to blame. Looks like everyone is trying to pass the buck. First, this 115-page report by Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee that investigated the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan blames the Biden administration. Let's look at the headline from ABC News. A year later, Republicans, uh, Biden White House, argue over Afghan withdrawal. And the Washington Post headline rubs salt into the Democrats warned. It says Biden botched Afghan withdrawal, new GOP House report claims. Fox News is even more Shakespearean. Republicans say Afghanistan withdrawal is haunting Americans, vowed to lead the charge in honoring sacrifice. And shock, horror, the White House fights back. Fox News explains that the White House memo called the Republicans' review a partisan report that is riddled with inaccurate characterizations, cherry-picked information and false claims. And the tit-for-tat continues. Fox News announced that uh, Republican Representative Michael McCall, who is leading that report, is firing back at White House for circulating a memo that defends the Biden administration's disastrous withdrawal, calling its claims demonstrably false and an attempt to sweep the chaotic withdrawal under the rug. It's like watching House of Cards on Netflix. The midterms in November are going to be a cliffhanger. No doubt that the blame shifting and the finger pointing will continue to hog the headlines at the expense of the Afghan people. Next, the media have also largely turned a blind eye on efforts by the Afghans to run their own country. News reports have unremittingly lashed out at the Taliban for failing the population. They ignore brighter spots such as the first annual budget fully funded by domestic revenues without foreign aid. The BBC, for instance, did a reality check on the subject. What's changed a year after Taliban return, reviewing the Taliban's promise it made one year ago? So, as I would always do, let's reality check the reality check. Sure, the economic and humanitarian situation is dire, and the human, human rights situation is not up to international standards, but the BBC eludes the real issues, namely international aid and money 
and mentions only in passing the crucial fact, the suspension of most international aid and the freezing of access to Afghanistan's foreign exchange reserves. By whom? No mention in that report. A nation is considered aid-dependent when 10% or more of its GDP comes from foreign aid. In Afghanistan's case, it's still a staggering 40%, according to the World Bank. The freezing of Afghanistan's assets led by the United States and the rest of the Western alliance have seriously hindered the recovery of the Afghan economy at a time when Afghans are in desperate needs of putting food on the table. Also, in this report titled UN says Afghans need 4.4 billion US dollars to have enough to eat. Al Jazeera talks about how hard the United Nations is trying to collect donations to stave off a hunger crisis in Afghanistan without giving readers the bigger picture. It also glosses over the major reason by saying rich nations have tried to put a financial squeeze on the Taliban in hopes of spurring desired reforms. Like that, rich nations try to do that. Are the Afghans supposed to live on the breadline unless President Biden decides otherwise? And can reforms be spurred by starving the people? Track records have shown the opposite time and again. Now, a horror story that's been turned into a feel-good story. Remember last year during the chaotic days of the U.S. withdrawal, a Kabul family were wrongly attacked as terrorist targets. Seven kids were killed instantly. One year on, the Washington Post devoted a long piece on their resettlement. The article went into great depths to report on that and how helpful the U.S. has been despite Taliban's reluctance. The title goes, a year after U.S. drone strike killed Afghan civilians, relatives on path to resettlement. Indeed, it was an extreme case of collateral damage. The article goes, the killing of Afghan aid worker Zamari Ahmadi and his relatives in Kabul marked a rare instance in which the U.S. government took responsibility for civilian deaths caused by U.S. drone strike and offered compensation, advocates said. Indeed, it's a rare instance. But the report did not ask why this case was an outlier. Remember, some 70,000 civilians died in the 20 years of U.S. occupation. What about thousands and thousands of other families? Also, looking ahead, will the U.S. learn the lesson and stop being cruel in order to be kind? And finally, the cherry on the cake, China. The media is making a fuss about China and its Belt and Road Initiative. This recent piece was carried by foreign policy. China is doomed to play a significant role in Afghanistan. It goes, talk about the BRI in Kabul and people will say good things and hope for great engagement, but they're still waiting for it to materialize. Well, some more information for you. On July the 29th, Wang Yi held talks with uh, Amir Khan Mutaki, acting Afghan foreign minister, over further strengthening the two countries' relations. And Wang said China is ready to push for dovetailing the BRI with Afghanistan's national development strategies, support the extension of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is part of the BRI, to Afghanistan, and share China's development opportunities. China can and will deliver on its words.
The foreign policy article concludes that China has all the trappings and potential to be a dominant player, but has made a strategic decision to continue to watch from the sidelines. How to put it? It's not a strategic decision cut out for Afghanistan. It's a time-honored principle for China that we don't interfere in others' internal affairs. Because Western countries do, they can't help seeing China through the same prison, only to be puzzled by what they are seeing. China is not doomed because China doesn't meddle in Afghan internal affairs. This is something commentators just don't seem to grasp. So how accurate and factual in the Afghan story one year after the U.S. withdrawal? We take a quick break and when we come back, I'll ask my guests to comment on the story. My guests will be Hujatullah Zia, journalist and senior writer from Daily Outlook Afghanistan, joining us from Kabul. Joe Bo, senior fellow and retired senior colonel from the Center for International Security and Strategy of Tsinghua University. And uh, Surab Gupta, senior Asia-Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist from the Institute for China-America Studies. Stay with me. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Welcome back to Headline Buster, brought to you by The Point with me, Li Xin. Let me turn to um, Mr. Gupta, who's joining us from DC. We've seen uh, a, you know, a slew of reports with the main tone being gloom and doom. So do you see the Afghan story as a glass half full or the other way around? I wouldn't say it's yet a glass half full. There are immense challenges, livelihood challenges. When people go hungry, when people don't have electricity, those are the very basics. And till that situation cannot be tided over, we can't talk about half full. But we do have to acknowledge that the very foundation for getting to half full is having a measure of security. And that is what the Taliban have been able to do. It was actually, frankly, a good thing that uh, when it did come to the fall of Kabul, that the Afghan soldiers then, rather than engage in a pitch battle, with, which would have just had immense bloodshed, but which would not have changed the, the outcome of the event, chose instead to put their guns down. And it's good that more or less that the Taliban have been able to provide security in the country, even though that's still not assured with uh, bad actors and terrorist groups operating. Security is at the very foundation of development before even development begins. And so mm. from that perspective, I think it's a great thing, mm. but there's still a long distance to go. And it requires not just the Afghans, but a lot, I think all of their neighbors coming together and supporting Afghanistan. Mm. Um, Mr. Zia, if you hear me clearly, now uh, it's very difficult to, to predict what's going to happen in the country. Do you see the Taliban on the right track of uh, um, drafting the policy and carrying them out in order to address the severe challenges? Uh, yes, the Taliban have uh, adopted a policy to, to invite the political figures to uh, come back uh, from uh, foreign countries. So this is a big step and this is a practical uh, step, you see. Uh, but uh, there are the challenges. Uh, one of the challenges is that uh, the Taliban ha uh, so far has not uh, drafted a constitution. So there's no base for law. Uh, for, uh, people are just uh, in, in confused. For example, when a person is involved in a crime, he or she does not know what uh, he or she will be treated on basis of 
of which law. So there is no constitution, no civil code or criminal code. So this is a negative aspect. But the positive aspect is that they have established an organization to invite political figures to come inside the country. So if the political figures and opposition individuals return to Afghanistan, and if the Taliban uh, are likely to form an inclusive government. So this is a very big positive step and uh, will create hope for the people. Hmm. Mr. Gupta, um, watching from United States is the focus on these processes and how to maybe strengthen the ability to govern for Taliban or rather Washington DC is really waiting and see from the outline. Meanwhile, the two different political parties are using the Afghan withdrawal and issue to gain political points. Yeah, it is. There is political point scoring. We, it's, it's, it's out there in the media. And unfortunately, I don't think the, the focus is on the development front. The focus at this point of time in the United States, and I say unfortunately, is to ensure that uh, terrorism or extremism or violence does not radiate out from Afghanistan's borders. And that has been kind of almost a single agenda issue. They do talk about, about development, but you, as you mentioned, I mean, half of Afghanistan's national bank's funds are still uh, in property blocking sanctions right now. And the other half is going to be used for victims of 9-11, which effectively <laughs> strips Afghanistan of its own, own, own money. And so there's not that much development that can be financed, at least from the Western end, and especially with this sort of uh, blocks being placed. But coming back to your main point, it's unfortunate, but the fundamental and almost sole goal is to ensure that terrorism and violence does not radiate out from, from Afghanistan and to uh, keep the Taliban on watch that they are being watched by the United States to ensure that that does not happen. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, I mean, that, that it cannot be a single agenda, but it's unfortunately that's the way the, 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 where, where the United States is currently with regard to Southwest Asia and Afghanistan. Mm. Well, yeah, uh, following up on what you just said, you know, this uh, very intense relationship between China and the United States, which um, makes me wonder um, whether there is any room for cooperation between China and the United States to cooperate to help stabilize Afghanistan. Um, Mr. Zhou, because last year in an opinion piece in New York Times, you wrote that even though the United States is leaving, there is an opportunity for Beijing and Washington to work together for a stable Afghanistan, given the kind of uh, pulling in different directions, do you still see that as possible? I think it is possible, but it is marginal because uh, China and the United States are great powers. So actually, uh, I believe on, on all the major issues in the world, uh, China and the uh, United States have uh, the duros, not this issue. When it comes to Afghanistan, China and the United States uh, had the cooperation before, for example, in some small areas training of uh, diplomats uh, and then joined the training of technicians. Uh, when Wendy Sherman visited China, he actually, she actually proposed to the Chinese side to have a cooperation on counter-narcotics. I don't believe it is uh, very realistic in that because if uh, Afghans do not uh, have a, any other means uh, other than, you know, uh, 
they're growing opium, for example, uh, to make a living, then opium becomes very, very important. Afghanistan provides about 80% of opium to the world. So uh, if they have to grow opiates, how can China and the United States really work the effective out of narcotics? But there are some other areas, for example, such as the joint efforts uh, in the uh, cultural relics protection. And this is kind of a nonsense nuclear that China and, and uh, you know, certainly uh, just exist. Uh, but I think that the, the grander picture is that China and the United States must cope on Afghanistan. Because even if the United States has actually left with all the officials uh, of diplomats down from uh, Afghanistan, the United States actually is still important. It is important everywhere. So because they actually have left the war behind. So, for example, Biden talked about build back better. Do you build Afghan back or even better? You never heard anything about his build back better plan in connection with Afghanistan. And this is totally wrong. Mm. Let me turn my last, give my last opportunity to Mr. Zia in Kabul. Um, do you think the Taliban is able to bring prosperity to Afghanistan? In other words, um, because they have not practically no experience in running a country, uh, what can we expect, Mr. Zia? Will religion trump development? They have to include other parties in the establishment of the permanent government. So they have to form an inclusive government, and all parties have to be on the board, regardless of their ethnicity, race, whatever. And they have to moderate their ideology better, far more than than the current ideology. I mean, the Taliban have entered Kabul with uh, not with the ideology of the 1990s because they have moderated their ideology. Mm. For example, and they did not uh, okay. impose any restriction on on women's dress code. But they can uh, reconcile their ideology, the real life of people, and. Uh, uh, for, uh, include others in the government and work together right. to uh, develop the country. In this case, uh, they will be successful. Thank you so much. Time is short. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Mr. Zia joining us from Kabul, a journalist and senior writer with Daily Outlook of Afghanistan. Mr. Joe Bo, retired senior colonel and now senior fellow with the Center for International Security and Strategy with Tsinghua University, joining us from Beijing. And Mr. Surab Gupta, senior Asia-Pacific International Relations Policy Specialist with the Institute for China-America Studies, joining us from Washington, D.C.